Good morning, everyone. If you could, go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 6. We've been on John chapter 6 for quite a while. It is a very, it's one of the lengthier uh, books of the book of John, and there's lots of material to cover, and I'm just going to kind of catch us up kind of quickly uh, today, but we'll be on verses 37 through 44, and I'll probably read 35 through 44 for context. But just to kind of catch you up where we're at, uh, there in chapter 6 so far, we've seen that the crowd following Jesus has grown tremendously, and uh, John lets us know why that is, that they're following him because of the signs that Jesus has performed on the sick. Uh, Jesus is then taking them out to a very desolate area. This is not on accident. It is on purpose. He's going out there to teach them uh, away from distractions, but also he's setting up one of the greatest, largest miracles that he will perform. It is the time of the Passover, we've also noted. Uh, that's one reason the crowd is, is, so, is so intense. There's so many of them. All the pilgrims have come back to Jerusalem, as was required by the law of God for those <clears throat> in that covenant to come back to Jerusalem on Passover. So all these people are there. Jesus takes them to a desolate place. He's teaching them all day. They're now hungry. There's no food. There's no restaurants. There's no Costco. There's no Sam's, Walmart. There's nothing, all right? They are hungry. How are they going to feed all of these people? Uh, and then finally, probably not not expecting anything like this, almost possibly kind of like a joke. Uh, that one of the apostles says, right, I have, here's a little kid that has two little pieces of uh, fish and five loaves of bread. And as we recall, we're talking about like sardines and little loaves that were very handy, like the size of a Twinkie. Uh, so nothing major, like obviously this was not going to feed everyone. And what does Jesus do? He takes that, has everyone sit down and feeds that day, 5,000 men, but including families, probably around 20,000 people. So the little bit that was given now has been multiplied. There's over 100,000 fish, over 100,000 loaves of bread. There, everyone is fed. Uh, there's so much that they're filled up, and there's leftovers, 12 basketfuls. After this feeding, uh, Jesus, oh, they, they cry out uh, that he is the prophet, capital T, capital P, he is the prophet, and this goes back to Deuteronomy 18, that Moses said, a greater prophet than I will come. And so they're saying, you must be the prophet. They also try to make him king. Jesus, however, secludes himself, goes up in the mountain to pray, sends the disciples across the Sea of Galilee, right? Huge storm comes on. Uh, the, the disciples are making no headway. And next thing you know, they see Jesus walking beside them through the storm. He enters the boat, the storm goes away, and instantly they are on shore. Whereas they were three to four miles out, now they're all the way across 13 miles. So what did the disciples do when he gets on the boat? Matthew records they saw him for who he really was. They acknowledged him and worshipped him as the Son of God. So we have to put ourselves in their shoes... Sometimes when uh, it's, it's, we're reading all this and we know the story and we know who Jesus is, we're like, well, of course he's the son of God. It said that back in verse 1, right, of John chapter 1. But they're living this out and it's information that's being progressively given to them. And they seen, they've seen him like turn wine and water into wine. They've seen, seen him uh, heal people. They've, they've seen uh, him heal the sick. Demons, demons come out, et cetera, et cetera. They've just seen this amazing, huge miracle of feeding all these people. But now an entire storm going away just with 
his mere presence, wanting it gone, it's gone. And instantly they're on shore. They worshiped him as the son of God. All right, long story short, they arrived. Uh, before long, the people that were on the other side who saw the miracles, who got fed, now chased Jesus to Capernaum. Capernaum is a big city, plenty of stores and restaurants, etc. there. Uh, they come and find Jesus. And what do they want? Do they want salvation? Do they want redemption? Do they want their sins forgiven? No, it's been about 12 hours, and guess what happens? They're hungry again, and they say, give us more bread. And then they start egging him on to say, uh, Moses fed the Israelites for 40 years with bread, right? And if you're the prophet that's supposed to be greater, surely you'll give us even more bread than Moses was able to give. And so Jesus has to correct them. He says, Moses didn't give them that. God the Father gave them that bread. And he, then he begins to make this connection that I am the bread of life. Like the bread, the manna, was pointing to a greater bread. The earthly bread gave them earthly life, kept them sustained, kept them living. It was from heaven, but now God has sent the bread of life. And what do they do? Since they've acknowledged him as the prophet, the one that they want to make king, they also call him rabbi, which is teacher, right? Do they listen to him? No. Look at your... Let's pick up there. Look at verse 35, and uh, we'll read in verse 36, that they do not listen to the one they call the prophet. Uh, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not ever thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending the bread of life that gives us eternal life that there is only one way to heaven, and we thank you for providing that way. You have provided the bread that gives us complete nourishment for our soul. You have provided the fountain of life to us that lets our souls thirst no more because they find that they are quenched in Jesus Christ. We thank you that our desires have been fulfilled in him, that we have redemption, we have justification, we have atonement, we have forgiveness of sins, and that we have believed in the one who gives us eternal life. Help us to rest more in him today as we study these words and study the text and see how greatly you have blessed us and how by grace we have been saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so these people have arrived. They're in front of Jesus. They've seen the great signs. They've been following Jesus probably because of the Passover previously where Jesus was doing signs. Now the pilgrims are back. They're looking for the guy who was doing the signs. Signs were not normative. People aren't, aren't just out and about doing this. 
There is one, Jesus, and he is doing these things. So the crowd is there. They've seen the signs previous year. This year, they've just been fed. They've come across the lake chasing him down. They want more signs. And what does Jesus reveal? He says, you do not believe. Now, they're in front of him. They see him with their eyes. They could reach out and touch him. They know he really exists. What does he mean that they do not believe? They believe in a version of Jesus. And again, we covered this last week. This is a form of idolatry. They have God in the flesh, but instead of acknowledging him as God in the flesh, they carve him out and make him just a man. They're willing to see him as just a man. That's not saving belief. That's not enough. He says, you see me, but you do not believe. There in verse 36, all right? Now, does this mean that the mission of Jesus has failed? I mean, they've seen all these signs. They've seen all the sick healed. They've eaten of the supernatural meal that he has provided. Now they're in front of him, and they still do not believe. And the question that seems to be asked here is, if the witnesses to all these signs do not believe, then who will? Right? What more? They want more signs, they say. Give us more signs. Give us more bread, and then we might. But Jesus says that's not the case. Uh, look back at verse 37. Let's see who, find, who is going to believe in Jesus. Verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So even though all these thousands, perhaps up to 20,000 people that were over there, many of them are across here now, and they're not believing, uh, how does Jesus reply to their disbelief, their unbelief? According to this passage, verse 37, who will come to Christ? And it's very clear. All that the Father gives to the Son. Of what percentage of the people that the Father gives to the Son will actually come to him? It is 100%. It is all, okay? So there is no one whom God intends to save who will not be saved. All that the Father gives to the Son, one body of people, some refer to this as the elect, that's fine. Jesus is referring to them here as the all, but this entire body that the Father gives to the Son will come to him. There will be belief in those. Now, this passage that we're going to cover today, verses 37 through verses 44, uh, cover a lot of different doctrinal issues. Some of you are familiar with an acronym called TULIP. Sometimes this is kind of labeled uh, Calvin or Calvin, by Calvin or Calvinism. Uh, th these terms, I'll review them quickly. If they're new to you, feel free to jot them down. Um, total depravity would be the T there in, in TULIP. Uh, unconditional election, the U. Limited atonement, irresistible grace for the eye and perseverance of the saints. And so these doctrinal terms make up that acronym TULIP, all right? Now, Calvin, John Calvin, did not create this acronym. He didn't put these things together like this. This was ascribed to him later on, much later on, and the acronym was then added. But this was standard teaching by the Reformers, all right? So Martin Luther, in fact taught more on these things, people say, and the historians say, than, than even Calvin. But Calvin writes a great, big, thick book on it called The Institutes, not just this, but it's a huge systematic theology book that becomes, you might say, the handbook of the Protestant Reformation. All right, now years later, 
1610, another guy comes along named Jacobus Arminius, and he decides that he is anti much of John Calvin's teaching, and that he's anti particularly these five points. So every point that is here, he reverses it and thinks, believes the polar opposite of it. So long story short, 1618, uh, the Synod of Dort meets, D-O-R-K, not Dork, all right? Uh, Dort meets, and they, uh, they come together to dispute these things. So, so you have the, the reforming thought, the reformers that come out against these, these 13 ministers and, and uh, Jacob Arminius-style thinking, and they come and debate these things, right? And so they kind of pinpoint it down to these five points. So oftentimes, Calvinism is considered tulip. And uh, that can, that, that is, but it's a huge reduction that's not necessarily the only thing. Because if you read all that Calvin has written, you're talking about thousands and thousands of pages and covering so many doctrines, it's amazing. But since he was kind of the standard and his book became the standard, these were the five points to go against him, but it was not only going against him, it was going against all the reformers, all right? So you kind of had two thoughts that developed there. You had the followers of Calvin, and you had the followers of Arminius. So thus you have Calvinism, and you also have Arminianism, okay? And those two are opposites. Today, we're going to be looking at those, see if you can see these five points within the text that we're going to be covering today. And not that you have to say, I am a Calvinist, but I think that you're going to look at the doctrines that, that he was, was cast upon him, this tulip, later on, and see that, okay, these are actually in Scripture, all right? Uh, we do not follow necessarily one single man, uh, but if we see these things in the Word of God, then we should definitely perk our ears up and open our eyes and see such things, all right? Now, if we look back over verse 37, for instance, um, which one of those doctrines or how many of those doctrines might you find there in verse 37? And there's several that are implicitly or explicitly stated even in verse 37. And as we get all the way through verse 44, you'll probably find all of them there. Okay. Uh, one, uh, most likely you'll see irresistible grace that is given here. Irresistible grace. So how many of those given to the Son by the Father will not come to the Son according to verse 37? Uh, and the answer is not zero percent. Okay, so this is this is irresistible grace. God draws uh, those that He has given to the Son, and they absolutely will come, and not one of them will not come. So this would be irresistible grace. They all come. There is not one single human in all the world that has, can, or will resist coming to Christ if they are of the body of people, the elect who has been given by the Father to the Son. They all, God is 100% successful, okay? And there is no one that can thwart his plans. He is 100% successful. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. This is, this is 100%. This is absolutely emphatic, absolutely declarative. So you can say irresistible grace is given here, all right? Now, again, do we'll cover this more as we get going, but you definitely do come to Christ as your Savior, this is for sure, but this is not something that you have mustered up, that you have created in and of yourself. The strength to, the ability to come to Him, that God moves upon you supernaturally, makes you willing, and so willing that there's no way that you would not come to Him. All right, this would be irresistible grace. Uh, and this is, again, introductory. If you have questions about this, 
see Jeff and Anthony after church. All right. <laughs> Unconditional election would be the next one that's, that's uh, implied here as well. Uh, God has sovereignty, uh, sovereignly determined who the all is. Uh, there is nothing here ascribed to the human element as far as what we have done or what they have done. or any, It's unconditional. This is in the mind of God, all right? It's not that some people are better than others or better decision makers than others who, who uh, are going to do better in life than others. Nothing like that. Unconditional election. Uh, the L is probably here too, limited atonement. And this one, uh, oftentimes theologians will change it a little bit. Some people stick to a limited atonement because it goes well with TULIP. Uh, once you start changing the letters there, it really messes the word up for the memory tool. Um, some people refer to it as definite atonement, and, and then you up with, with TULIP, and it kind of sounds weird, yeah. Uh, particular redemption, uh, that's TUPIP, it just doesn't make sense, you know, it's like kind of hard to remember. But either one of these... I, I personally like the other ones, but I, I remember limited atonement better. But particular redemption or definite atonement. God is not giving all of humanity to the Son. How do we see that? Look in verse 37. Who is the Father giving to the Son? It's a, it is a body of people, but it is not all of humanity. The Son will atone for and redeem a definite people. Those people are the same ones that the Father has given him. All right? So it's the same group of people. These, the Father has given them to the Son. The Father will draw them to the Son. And we see that this is 100% successful. This is not all humanity. Now, the other one is also going to be, look at verse 37. Look at the end of it. And you'll get perseverance of the saints. This one, too, um, you, you can say perseverance of the saints. I keep the P there, but I prefer another word for that, preservation of the saints, because it, it again, looks to who is preserving them. It's, it is, we do persevere, but also, why do you persevere? Because you're being preserved by God, all right? So look at verse 37, and we'll read it, the whole thing. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So if just this verse, uh, how many of those given to the Son by the Father will come to him? It's 100%. Of the 100%, how many will Jesus raise up on the last day or raise up? Uh, and again, the answer is 100%. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's nothing you can do. If you've been given to the Son by the Father. Uh, you will come, and whoever comes, he will never cast out. So there's nothing that can be done by the individual, by anyone in this group of the all, that can cause them to be cast out of that group of all. They are always, all, always going to be the ones given by the Father to the Son who Jesus will raise up. And there's, that's permanent. It is definite, all right? So every single person whom the Father gives comes to the Son, and the Son raises up. Not one single person of that all will be lost. Uh, God fully and truly saves all those he ever intended to save. Now, it's at this point, when you look at verse 37, and this is new to you, you might be saying something like, you mean God is in control of salvation? And the answer is yes. That is exactly what he is saying here, all right? God is definitely in control, and no amount of the unbelievers in front of Jesus are going to thwart the plan of God. 
So that no matter if there's a thousand of them grumbling in front of him, five thousand, ten thousand, no matter if they end up uh, giving calling for Barabbas instead of Jesus, no matter if they crucify him, spit on him, mock him, uh, take the flesh off of his back, etc., etc., there's no amount of unbelief that is going to change God's saving plan. All right, so it is permanent. Now look at verse thirty-eight. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now, what is the particular will of God that Jesus is talking about in the context that, that we've just read? Uh, the, the all in verse 37 is the same group in verse 38 and verse 39, whom the Father and the Son's will is united to save. It is the same will. It is the same, the same activity. Those that the Father has given to the Son, those that will come to the Son, those that the Son will never cast out, this is the will of the Father. The, the will of Jesus, God the Son, the will of God the Father is unified in the calling uh, the, the, for, the, the, the election, the preserving, and the glorifying of this body of people. It, they are completely unified in this. Now, according to verse 39, if you look at this, how many people will lose their salvation of that group? Let's look at it and let it speak for itself. Uh, and this is the will of him who sent me, God the Father, that I, Jesus, should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Again, we're, we're faced with 100%. All right, Jesus and God the Father are united. There's perfect harmony in this will that God and Jesus are, are intricately connected, unified, harmonized. This is the will of God the Father and the Son that he will lose not one of them. You have this body of, a body of people given to the Son. They will come to him. They will not be cast out. He will raise them up on the last day. And Jesus will lose how many? None. None. I mean, this is, the, 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 these doctrines are, are meant to provide comfort to us as believers. All right? There is nothing you can do, in the, as Paul says in Romans, in the past, in the present, in the future, to separate you from the love of Jesus Christ our Lord. You are, you are in him. You have believed in him. You are absolutely secure. Rest. Take Sabbath in Jesus Christ. Rest your salvation in him fully because nothing is going to remove you. Jesus is not going to lose not even one. None. All right. Now, what does Jesus mean here by the last day? This comes up several times in this passage. Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And this is, again, the, he's speaking of the final judgment. All right. Look back at John chapter 5. Look at verses 28 and 29. John chapter 5, 28 through 29. It's been a few weeks back, but we covered this last day the day of final judgment. Uh, verse 28 and verse 29, Jesus, Jesus talked about this last day. 
uh, where, where the Pharisees were judging him, right? And he's saying, hey, actually, I am going to be the judge of not only you, but all creation of all mankind. In verse 28, he says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So this is the last day, the final day, the day of judgment. There is a great divide. All humanity will be divided up. As Matthew covers, though, where Jesus spoke on this, they'll be divided up. The sheep from the goats, right? And the sheep will enter into heaven. The goats will enter into permanent wrath, receiving the wrath of God. Uh, there will be one great divide. There is nothing in the middle. There is no purgatory. There is no get-out-of-jail-free card at that time. It is the people who have died. They will be judged for what they did in this life. They do not get to change their mind. It is permanent. It is over. It is done. And it is heaven or hell. This is the last day. Now, this is what Jesus is talking about, the last day. So of how many people who God has given to the Son, who have came to the Son, will Jesus not raise up on the last day? I'll say it slower in case you get it wrong there. All right. uh, how many of the people that the Father has given the Son that will come to the Son will Jesus raise up on the last day? It's 100%. How many will he not raise up on the last day? It's, it's 0%. All right. God's plan of salvation is absolutely perfect, absolutely secure. And this is the will of God the Father. This is the will of God the Son. And it is done. All right. It is, it is perfect. So he loses not one. Now, uh, a person who has believed in Christ should read these passages and take great comfort and take great rest. If you as a believer, if you're wondering, I wonder if I will make it to heaven. I wonder if I'll get to heaven. I wonder if Jesus will raise me to everlasting life on the last day. You can know these things. You should rest in this. If you have believed in Christ for your salvation, truly believed, not like those who are standing in front of him that day who claim to believe in him but deny that he is the son of God, that's not true belief. But if you have rested in the true person and true work of Jesus Christ for your salvation, you should take rest in this. This is the will of God, the de declarative will of God, decretal will of God and of the Son that you have been given to the Son by the Father. You have come to Jesus in true faith, true belief. You have belief. You have repentance of sin. These are marks of a true believer. Will you make it to heaven? Yes, absolutely. Why? Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. He is going to. He has died for sins. He has been risen. And you can trust that your sins have been forgiven. And you will be raised up on the last day. Now look over at verse 40. Let's continue down. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now, here a question might come to your mind as you're reading this possibly for the first time or thinking on these things. How do you know if you are one of the all or one of the elect that the God the Father has given to the Son, that will come to the Son, that he will raise up on the last day? All right? Uh, this is how you know. You, verse 40, you're one of those who look to the Son and believe in Him for salvation. 
Jesus is not contradicting verse 37 that he spoke about just earlier, that, that God is sovereignly ordaining this. Those he gives will come. You will come, and you will come willingly, and you will look to Jesus there in verse 40, the Son, and believe in him. As we've mentioned before, this is the purpose statement of the entire book of John, he writes. Toward the end, right, he writes, so these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have eternal life. Belief, all right? Those who are of the elect, those who have been called by God, uh, truly believe. Now, this counters, you might say, the false belief there in verse 36. Verse 36, Jesus says, you see me, but do not believe, right? Now, look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son still seeing and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Though the same people that the father has given to the son are the same people who will look to the son and believe. This is all part of that God bringing them to coming to Christ. All right. Uh, some people wrongly uh, think about these things, uh, think, think, am I of the elect, am I of the elect, am I not of the elect, am I not of the elect, where really the, the weight of this should be on, who do you trust in for your salvation? If you look back at verse 40, and, and almost every chapter we've covered in the book of John, it's believing in Jesus, believing in Jesus, believing in Jesus, that all, all of the elect will believe, and all who believe are of the elect. Or you might write that down. You might store that in your memory if as best you possibly can, all right? Because this is what we see. All these things are tied together here, that, that this all is not just a, a, a bald, empty uh, uh, people with no faith, that the all that is given to the Son, that will come to the Son, they come to Him in faith. They come to Him in true belief, and they do believe, and they will be raised up on the last day so that you could safely say, all of the elect, this all, will believe, and all who believe are of the elect. So instead of, instead of worrying about, am I of the elect, it would, be, it would be better to say, who do I trust in for my salvation? Who do I believe in for my salvation? Because all who look to the Son and all who believe in the Son and acknowledge Him for who He truly is, those are the all. Okay, uh, but what we find in, in this passage is belief is the product of being of the elect and is brought about by God. And salvation is a Trinitarian work. I think, uh, I think uh, Tyler's teaching on the Trinity coming up to our table leaders soon. He's going to be teaching more on this. Can't wait to hear this. But salvation is a work of the entire Trinity. In this particular passage where, where he's, he's uh, showing how the Father's will and the Son's will is perfectly in unity, perfectly harmonized. There is no difference, all right? But also we find that faith does not produce regeneration, but regeneration produces faith, and that this is a work of God. And if you remember, we covered John chapter 3. Go back over there just for a minute, but we, we see where the Holy Spirit is doing this. So if you, if, and that's what we're finding out as we read the book of John, the Father's will, the Son's will, the Spirit's will, perfectly aligned in perfect harmony all right john chapter 3 i could spend too long with this but i'm just going to kind of remind you of this nicodemus has come to jesus 
who acknowledges him as at least someone sent from God because of the signs that he is doing. Now look at verse 3 and look at the work that God does, the Holy Spirit does, to bring about regeneration, to make a person alive again. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, one is born, unless one is born, again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And the point of this, and we made that point as we went through John chapter 3, is that salvation is of the Lord and even the working of the Holy Spirit. Uh, unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. So this is that regeneration that is brought about by God the Holy Spirit. Uh, which one of these comes first? Do you, is it belief or is it regeneration? We find that flesh profits nothing. You, you have, there's nothing you can contribute on your own to do such a thing, but it is a work of the Holy Spirit. So God regenerates us in salvation, births us again, and we do come to Christ. We have true belief in the Son because of the work of the Holy Spirit, because of the work of God the Father who has given this all to the Son. And you find that it's just all one great harmony, but the Trinity working in different aspects to bring about your salvation. All right, uh, look over at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. We skipped Ephesians 2 last week, so I thought we'd go back to it this week, all right? I know we're there a lot. But Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And you'll look at more of this in your discipleship time. Uh, but just looking at the, this fact that God, the Holy Spirit, brings us to life, regenerates us so that we see the kingdom of God. We see Jesus Christ as the, as the true king and we believe in him. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So it is God who is doing all of this. So in, in, in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it is by grace. And these doctrines that we're covering today, a better name you might say than calling them Calvinism, because that can be highly offensive when people don't know what that really means, uh, is just doctrines of grace. And that's what they're often called, doctrines of grace. You've been saved by grace, grace alone. And all of these, these doctrines are connected to grace. All right, you, we deserve nothing. Uh, what do we actually deserve? We are all sinners by nature. We follow Ephesians chapter 2, right? We follow Satan. We follow the sons of disobedience. We do what our flesh, we do what our minds desire. We are contributing nothing. In fact, Paul says we're spiritually barely moving. No, he says we're spiritually dead, right? Not moving at all. There's nothing we can do. So what happens? God makes us alive. So that what do we do when we've been made alive? We don't pat ourselves on the back and say, good job, Trey, for making yourself come from death to life. I can't do such a thing. God has done that. It's by grace. And the better you see grace, the more you will thank God for your salvation. The more you will praise God for your salvation. If you think you've contributed something to this, you say, well, I brought my faith to it at least. You know, I personally did that. 
then go back and read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 slower, all right? <laughs> you, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Yes, look what I've done. And this is not your own doing. <laughs> oh, man. So he gets all the glory? Yes, that's the point. It's solo deo gloria. We give him all the glory for our salvation, right? So, so it is not your own doing. Uh, so what is not your own doing? It is faith. His faith is not your own doing. You will believe. You absolutely will believe. If you are in the awe, given to the Son, and will come to the Son, and will be raised up on the last day, you will believe. But even that faith, even that belief, you praise God for that, all right? Um, go on down. Let's, let's look at verse 41. Verse 41. Verse 41. Uh, how will the... Well, and, and again, we're, we're in the situation. The, the Jews are there in front of him. They're not believing, even though they see him. Look at verse 41. Jesus claimed to be the bread of life. They're rejecting that. Uh, are they going to listen to him as the prophet? Remember last week we covered that Deuteronomy 18 passage from Moses saying the, the prophet that is to come greater than I. You must listen to him or you will die. I mean, that's what they're to be looking for, listening to him, listen to his teaching. He's teaching them. They're not listening. Look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Now, where else do you see people in the Bible many times? But, but where does it stick out really in your mind of people grumbling against Jesus or against God, right? And it's going to be Moses. So hold your place there. Turn over to Exodus 16, verses 2 through 8. And you see the grumblers extraordinaire come out there. They are grumbling. <clears throat> and this, this word for grumble here and in John is, uh, is referred to as an onomatopoeia for you who like fancy words. Uh, onomatopoeia is a, it's a word that is, is meant to describe what is going on. It sounds like grumble, 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 right? So there, there's so many people are doing this grumbling that it takes on its own thing. It's just this, this ruckus, this chaos, this loud grumble, grumble, grumble noise that is going on. And that's what was going on in front of Jesus. They see him, but they do not believe. And here in Exodus, we find the same thing happening. Look in, look in verse 2 of Exodus 16. And the whole congregation of people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, what, uh, would, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. All right, so they are grumbling. Now think about at this point all that they have seen God do. You talk about signs not being adequate to cause belief. You have all these people in front of Jesus who have seen signs upon the sick, fed, feeding of the whatever 20,000 people supernaturally. They come to him. They do not believe in him. They, even though they see him, they grumble. But you think back to the Israelites at this point. There had been 10 different plagues, supernatural plagues of destruction upon Egypt. Yet the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were encamped out, it was immune to this. The hailstorms, the, the blood, the, the, the in, in insect infestations, etc., etc. The Passover, right? God's redeeming them, setting them free. The sea parting, the sea closing back up, etc., etc. The fire in the sky just over and over. And yet, now they're hungry. Ah, 
God, I don't like this God anymore. I'm hungry. It's like, and then what do they want? They want to go back to Egypt. They had rather have died in Egypt than God have set them free. So they're grumbling. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring, uh, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. Uh, for what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but it is against the Lord. Now, fascinating here. You can turn back to John, that you have Jesus in this section of John, who is proclaiming himself to be the bread of life that God has sent down from heaven. And they have just compared him to Moses. They have called him the greater prophet. If Moses provided this glorious bread for 40 years, how much greater are you than Moses? How many free meals are we going to get? Maybe 50, 60, 80 years? I mean, this is going to be tremendous, right? But as we talked about last week, Old Testament types do not come across evenly. They get much better, but not more food, not just more longer life here, but eternal life. That bread from heaven, the manna, was pointing to Jesus who brings eternal life to those who feed upon him. Now, but you have them have Jesus right there talking about the bread of life, them talking about Moses, them talking about the manna, and what do the people in front of him do? They grumble that God has sent the bread of life much better than a literal piece of bread. They would rather have the bread in front of them. And you go back, you're putting all this together. Back here, Moses, the people of Israel, they were grumbling against Moses and Aaron. But God says, no, no, your grumbling is against me. God gives them grace, gives them 40 years of manna. Uh, does that stop the grumbling? If you know the story of Israel, it does not. Numbers 11, they finally get so grumbling don't know if that's a word, all right? But there's grumbling so much that Moses says, God, just kill me. I can't take their grumbling any longer. Just take me. I mean, that's, that's a lot of grumbling going on, right? Uh, it's just uh, these people, I just, you know, I've, we've done everything we can do, and they're still grumbling, and they're still unbelieving after all of that. So it is by no accident that you have the unbelieving Israelites grumbling against the Lord, about the manna, even when the manna's given and they have years of it, they're still grumbling. And now what that manna was pointing to, Jesus, God in the flesh, the way to eternal life, what we must feed on to have eternal life, is right in front of them, and they're doing the exact same thing. They're still grumbling. What are they grumbling about? Look at verse 42. They said, it is not this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Uh, so what are they grumbling about? They, have, they don't want to, they will not 
believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. They are refusing to. They are grumbling that he says that he is the bread of life that's come down from heaven. They're unwilling to see this type and fulfillment, this type and substance, right? The shadow and substance. They're unwilling to. They just want bread. Look, we came all the way across the sea to get another meal. We just want food, and you're offering eternal life. Like, we just want food, right? And it's such a, such a bad belief. And he's, you're from heaven. Okay, we just want some food. Give us a snack. No. So their, their unbelief is ridiculous. And they continue to grumble there in front of Jesus. Their grumbling exposes their unbelief just like the grumbling of the Israelites did in the time of Moses. They will not see him. They will not come to him. They see that you're just a person. And this continues to be a debate throughout church history as we've been covering on the, in the men's study that people constantly are, are, have, have pulled at the definition of Jesus, removing vital points, creating a different Jesus than the Gospels give us, and they create a false idol. They're willing to believe in Jesus, who is the son of Mary and Joseph, leave out the God aspect of it, who came from Nazareth or Bethlehem, but not from heaven. They're willing to see him as a person. They see him. He's human right in front of him, but they're unwilling to see him as God. That is false belief, all right? Look at verse 44. Back to some of these uh, five points that we talked about earlier. I think we've touched on four of them. Here we'll touch on another one, uh, the T. Uh, no one can, no one can, no one can. Come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This would go back to that T, the first letter there, and that acronym we covered early on, the TULIP, uh, total depravity. Depravity is a word that we don't use that often any, any longer. I prefer total inability. It's a little bit more explanatory. Uh, the Bible lets us know this in many different passages, but that we are slaves to sin. We are in bondage to sin. We follow Satan, follow sons of disobedience, etc. Spiritually dead, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, and here... We have no ability. Uh, look back at verse 44. According to this passage, how many people come to God on their own? Uh, it's 0%. I mean, this, this 37 to 44 operates in zeros and 100s, all right? It's 0% or 100%, and there's nothing in between. Uh, there, there's not some, maybe, some can't. It's, 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 right here, it's going to be none. So no one can, not even one person. You think of the best person you've ever known in your entire life, Surely they can. Nope, not them either. All right. No one has ever. No one can ever. No one will ever. No one can come to Jesus unless something happens. This is inability, total inability. So if a person has no power to come to God, then how does everyone or anyone ever come to God? If we have no ability, if we cannot come to God, what happens? What's well, answered here in this passage, verse 44. The Father who sent Jesus draws them to him. No one can come to Jesus, he's saying, unless, here it is, there is some way, the Father who sent him draws him. So this is, you could go back to unconditional election, you could throw in an irresistible grace here as well. Uh, you definitely have the total inability, you can't do these things in and of ourselves. The Father draws him. Now some people... 
will try to uh, attempt to treat this as a coercive pleading uh, by God the Father, inviting or asking us to come to him that everyone in the world receives. Just this general come to the son, uh, kind of coercive, kind of, kind of pleading, God begging, you know, come, come, come. Uh, but this is not the case. Uh, the same people the father draws are those he has given to the son. They are also the same people the son will raise on the last day. This drawing is limited to those all. Because look back at verse 44, read it again. Uh, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is, this is exactly what verse 37 was talking about, verse 39 was talking about, and verse 44, that is the same all every single time. All those that the Father gives to the Son will come to him. He will raise them up. He will lose not one of them. Uh, and here in verse 44, no one can come unless the Father draws. Of what percent of those he draws will come, it's 100%. And, and he will raise them up again on the last day. All of this is connected. So how many of those whom the Father draws actually come to Jesus? It's 100% again, right? And you know this because he answers at the end of verse 44 again, I will raise him up on the last day. Now, you see in this passages from 37 to 44, lots of doctrine mixed in to this bread of life teaching, all right? And it is to give God all the glory for salvation. It is by grace anyone is saved. Uh, what do we deserve? All of us deserve the wrath of God. If God has chosen to save some, then we thank God that he has chosen to save. And we don't look to ourselves and say, well, good job, me. We just thank God for salvation. Uh, this is a great, doc great doctrines that are meant to add comfort to your soul and not conflict to your soul. That you're to look at these and go, wow. It feels like what he's saying is that, that salvation is of the Lord and that my salvation is absolutely secured by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? That's right. And there's nothing that can interrupt that. There's nothing that can break that up. If you have been called to Him, if you have believed in Him, if you've seen the Son as the Christ, the Son of God, and have believed in Him, you have eternal life. Will you be raised up on the last day? Absolutely. Because He will lose how many? None. And you're of the none. There's a great security in this, all right? Let's stop there today. Dearly Father, we thank you for the security of salvation that you have initiated and that you bring about and that you bring fully about in our glorification. We thank you that we can rest our salvation in Jesus Christ and that knowing that we have eternal life, knowing that we will rise to resurrection life one day. And God, we pray right now as anyone who is here who has believed in you, uh, you have brought that about through the Holy Spirit who has birthed us again, made us alive, regenerated us so that we have faith, so we have repentance. And if there's anyone here who has not yet believed in you for salvation, God, we pray that today would be the day where you open their mind, open their heart, open their eyes to see that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the prophesied Christ. He is man, but he is God. He is the one who has come 
to be the bread of life that must be fed upon to have eternal life. He is the only one that can forgive of sins, atone for, pay for those sins, Lord. Help them to rest in him today for salvation, we pray. Lord, help us to rest our salvation, all believers, Lord, in the person, in the work of Jesus Christ, but also in the entirety of the work of the Trinity. We thank you, God, for the glory of this salvation, the beauty of this salvation, and we thank you that it's not up to us to attain it by doing something in and of ourselves, and it's not up to us to do something to maintain or to keep it, but that you are the preserver of our eternity, of our salvation. We thank you for that grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.